0: In the Catechism Preaching, we have come to Lord's Day 35, which you will find on page 552 of your Book of Praise. Lord's Day 35, where we have the following questions and answers. What does God require in the Second Commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. May we then make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity. No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants us people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. Thus far. After the sermon, let us sing from Psalm 103, the stanzas 5, 7, and 9. 103, 5, 7, and 9. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Some time ago, you dealt with a key question in Lord's Day 23 that asked, How are you righteous before God? And I'm sure you will recall the answer, we are righteous before God by true faith in Jesus Christ. But that is only the first part of the answer, because we continue by saying that we have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, never kept any of them, and that we are still inclined to all evil. And if you reflect upon these words, you have to say these are not very flattering words. These are not very flattering things we say about ourselves, but they are a sober reflection on how we live from day to day and how we perform with regards to the things we do, which we are not supposed to do, as well as the things we don't do, as we are required to do. And therefore, such an evaluation will make us all acknowledge that what we confess in Lord's Day 23 is true. And yet, as we begin our discussion of the Ten Commandments regarding our obedience required to the law of God, we have a tendency to more or less rethink what we say in Lordship 23. Oh, you see, there is no problem with the statement that we are still inclined to all evil, but is it really true that we have grievously sinned against all God's commandments And so we go down the list and make certain exceptions, such as the second commandment, where God instructs us not to make idols in any form to bow down to in worship. Now, for us as children of the Reformation, that hardly seems an issue any longer. Simply stated, we don't dream of doing such a thing. The destruction of images in the churches during the 16th and 17th century has rid our worship services and of veneration of icons or images. And since we do not have any images in our church building, the thought can so easily arise that we are keeping God's second commandment to a T, so that in, actual, in actuality, we do not contravene all God's commandments. But such reasoning, if that should happen, Such reasoning only reveals that we haven't fully grasped and grappled with the fact that behind every prohibition, you shall not, we find a demand, you shall. In every command where God says, you shall not, he demands of us that we do the opposite. And so when God says, you shall not steal, he at the same time implies that we need to respect and protect what belongs to someone else. And likewise, when God commands that we do not make idols to worship it, then it will not suffice that we do not make statues or pictures representing God. No, we must learn to understand that God wants us to be his image. God forbids us to make any image of himself because he wants us to be his image since we were created in his image. And when we see this clearly, then we'll never, forget, never question again the ongoing significance of the second commandment in our lives. Because our being, the image of God, let's face it, leaves much to be desired. Every day anew, we fall short in reflecting the glory of God in our lives. It's true, we have sinned against all God's commandments. And so I bring you God's word as the church confesses concerning how God wants to be worshipped. And we look at two things. The first one is that we, God wants to be worshipped according to his standards. And secondly, because God's standards point to a unique God. How God wants to be worshipped, going by God's standards, because God's standards point to a unique God. Now one thing that we should note at the outset is that his covenant law, in that law the Lord God does not say, you shall not make an image of me. And yet the Heidelberg Catechism explains the second commandment that God requires that we do not make any image of him in any way. And upon a little bit further reflection, we realize that this explanation of the Catechism is right on. For you see, if it is already forbidden to make an image or an idol in the form of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the seas for the purpose of worshiping God through it, then this holds true even more of God himself who created all things. And that is so self-evident that God does not have to specifically mention it. And still the catechism zeroes in on this point, so that God is and always will remain in the center. We are not to make an idol of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. And the reason for the catechism saying it that way is perhaps twofold. The lesser of the two is simply a practical consideration for, you see, we would all create our own vision of what God looks like. Take, for example, the discussion that has happened in the past. What did the Lord Jesus look like? Well, he would look Asian or African, or blue-eyed, depending on where you are from. More to the point why we may not make an image of God is because anything or anyone who shapes his or her own God will also want to control that self-made God. And not only control it, but also dictate what that God has to do and how it has to act. If, on the other hand, we shape our lives according to what God dictates as normative in life, then we have to look away from ourselves to God as he truly is. And so the second commandment tells us what sets the standard in worshiping the Lord. For us, God's word is normative in our service to him. And in his law, God says to us, I want you to serve me in this way serve me in no other way than I have laid down for you in my law and in my word to you. For you see in the law the Lord God stresses the norm not the form. No image is to shape our ideas of God but God's norm or his standard must shape our image uh, must shape us into image bearers of God. For you see, there is very little difference between idolatry, that is, worship and veneration of an idol or an image, and ideology, that is, a philosophy or a set of ideas. The difference between the worship of God through an idol and the worship of God through an idea becomes trivial. For you see, idolizing and idealizing lie on the same level. What people idolize is often also an extension of what they idealize. And so the difference is that in idolatry, there usually is an image to worship. With ideology, you don't make a statue out of wood or stone to worship. Now, ideology is basically contained to the mind, and in a way of thinking. And that is why we could say in the previous Lord's Day, Lord's Day 34, that idolatry is more than having an image. It is having or inventing something in which to put our trust in place of or in addition to the only true God. And since the difference between idolatry and ideology is often so slight, or minimal, you will also realize that for that reason the first and second commandments are closely linked. In the two together, God says, serve me only, and serve me according to my directives and standards. And so in the second commandment, the Lord makes clear that he alone is the one who determines the way in which he wants to be worshipped. And God expects from us that we worship him in the way that he prescribes. And our our attitude and motivation to worship is shaped by our understanding of our redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. For you see, we need to understand that we do not only worship the only true God, but we worship the God who has sent his only son into this world to redeem us from sin. And the point here is that there is no God. No other God has ever done that or could ever do so. And that is why in our thankfulness for God's love, we ought to show more, than, uh, uh, more and more that we are renewed after the image of Christ. And here then you have the reason for what I said at the beginning. That we are not to make an image of God but we are called to be the image of God. And each day the Lord Jesus Christ wants to be busy in our lives, renewing us by his Spirit to become more and more the image of our Creator through the Son. And that brings us then to the second point of the sermon, that we need to worship God according to his standards, because God's standards point us to a unique God. One thing that we should realize, my brothers and sisters, is that God does not want to be worshipped in an arbitrary way. But he wants to be worshipped according to his standards. It is always the way of his word and the way of faith. It is the way of Jesus Christ and of the blood of atonement offered in the proclamation of the gospel. And that gospel then is received by faith. And so every worship service we attend and in which we do not submit to the word, to what we read in scripture, every worship service we attend and in which we do not submit to the word, we are sinning against the second commandment. For you see, at stake is the manner of true worship and service to God, who wants his people to be taught by the living preaching of his word. And you know, when you hear this, and we read that in the Catechism, we have learned it, then we think, hey, this does not come as a surprise. It doesn't come strange at all that we see, uh, hear that, because if you know that faith comes from what is heard, as we read in Romans 10... And what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. Then we know that the preaching of the word is the way in God wants to be worshipped. That through that preaching, he wants to elevate people to the understanding of his majesty and his greatness. Oh, I know that there is a saying that a picture is worth a thousand words. And you know, in many cases, that holds true. However, God takes a different view In the second commandment, he pits the living preaching against the static pictures. Although all preaching is inadequate in proclaiming the fullness of God, pictures are even more inadequate to make known the fullness of God. And so it is no wonder that the Catechism gives a twofold answer to the question about making images to differentiate between Images of God and images in general. God cannot and may not be visibly represented in any way. And that's understandable because no one has ever seen God. When He spoke to His people and when Mount Horeb was ablaze because of God's presence, the people heard the voice but they saw no form. They just heard a voice. God is invisible. And every attempt to make an image of God is therefore useless. Yeah, actually, it's worse than that. It is highly insulting to God because sinful men can never think of God properly. And because we cannot think of him properly, we would dishonor him by any image that we would want to make of him. And that's why I read with you from Deuteronomy 4. For Deuteronomy 4 explains the contents and the intent of the second commandment. And if you still have your Bibles open, then you might want to look at the verses 19 and 20. You see, God's people may not make any image of anything in heaven, on earth, Or in the seas to serve him through them. And why is that? Well, for the simple reason that God gives the benefit of the sun and the moon and the stars. He gives that benefit to everyone who lives on earth. But the Lord God has taken his chosen people to be his own possession. So what I'm trying to get at is this. The sun, the moon, and the stars... They are common property, so to speak. Everyone can benefit from them for light and for warmth. But the Lord is a covenant God only to his special people. And therefore, they may not reduce him to something ordinary like the sun, the moon, or the stars, or an animal, as the nations around them are doing. And all these nations have the same God's they've just given them different names and here it comes Israel's god is unique and that is why Moses says has any other people heard the voice of god speaking out of fire as you have and lived in verse 33 there is no other and therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments Israel was set apart from the nations by a unique God to be his unique people. And therefore, he also expects them to, be, to serve him in a different way from all other peoples around, him, around them. And you see, that unique God is also our God, our Lord. And we should always think of him as there is no one like him. And therefore, we need to serve him As he directs, not in images and not in ideologies either. That is, and remains a decisive point in this commandment, my brothers and sisters. God wants to be served in the way he directs and that he ordains. For God also said, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And please don't skip those words of that commandment. Our jealous God looks for dedication in the lives of his children. You see, he is protective of his honor and glory. He does not share that honor and glory with any rival, he never has. And he never will. For you see, there is no other. And therefore, the second commandment teaches us to be careful not to offend God in any way. Our actions and our decisions of today affect us now, and they affect future generations. And the warning is that our unique and jealous God will punish the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Now those words of the law. Have confused people sometimes. And they say. Does this mean that God punishes his children. For the sins of the parents. And the answer is no. It does not mean that. And it does not. It's not, it's not what the second commandment is saying either. For notice that It says. It speaks about sin in the singular. And that points to a prevailing attitude. Scripture uh, states explicitly that God does not punish the son for the sin of the father, nor does he punish the father for the sin of the son. No, we are accountable for our own deeds. But it is equally true, my brothers and sisters, that no one sins against God without it having an impact on others. For instance, if parents serve the Lord in a half-hearted fashion, well, then they can expect that their children love the Lord even less. And chances are that the grandchildren do not want anything to do with the Lord any longer, for things always slide from bad to worse. And God jealously guards that danger. God's jealousy, or jealousy rather, against sin of the fathers affects future generations. And so let's be careful how we worship our unique God, my brothers and sisters. For you see, in their formative years, the children need constant guidance along the way. And the point is, Be involved with your own faith development, but also be involved in that of your children, their faith development, and stay involved. The Bible instructs, teach and train your children in godliness. Teach them, therefore, to go to church and worship there with fellow believers. Yes, make it part of their routine early in life so that it becomes part of life. You see, we may be very thankful to the Lord that he shows us so much patience. He gives us time to correct our ways. He is merciful in that he does not immediately cut off and and cut the tie when there is disobedience or obstinacy, when people turn away from him or snub him. No, he still holds on. And to call at straying people to return to him. But what the Bible is saying here is that after two or three generations, that doesn't happen any longer. God is patient for two or three generations, which is roughly 40 to 60 years. Think about that. But then his patience runs out. Then he will leave the people on their own to their own actions. And he will punish the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him because they have not learned to love God. He will give them up to their own desires. And what does that mean for us, my brothers and sisters? Well, it means that what you and I do in our lives and with our lives affects more than just us personally. All our decisions are made in the presence or in the present, rather, but they have implications for the future. And most of all, it affects the children whom God has entrusted in our care. And these children need to be taught to fear the Lord and to love the Lord. That is the primary task in life of God-fearing parents. How and what we teach our children can be a blessing or a curse for them. And if we teach them to love the Lord, then his blessing will stay with them to the next generation. But if we become slack or lax in teaching them the Lord's ways, then that is a sign that the Lord, to the Lord, that our commitment to him is minimal and insufficient because then our love for him is not our highest aim. But God has promised the blessing upon the faithfulness of the generations. He promises blessing upon the faithful from generation to generation. And that blessing, my brothers and sisters, comes our way through worshiping the Lord God as he has commanded us in his word. And you know, that is not always the easiest way. I know that. You know that. But it is for sure the only way For the Lord's mercy is upon those who fear him. Scripture says. And through them the blessing flows upon the children through the generations. So just think about these things as you reflect on life and go through life. What is my decision of today? Not only doing for me today. But also for my children and my grandchildren down the line. God works his love through the generations. Amen.